Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. I'm Jeff Carlson. So this week, we want to talk about something that we don't know anything about. That's not really fair. <laughs> Jeff knows about it. He's written about it, but I don't know anything about it. I've heard this term before, focus stacking. It sounds like something a bit illicit, you know, like stuffing ballot boxes maybe or no. – but- it's it's better than that. It's when you take lots of lenses and you stack them one <laughs> on top of the other and then you try to look through them and you realize that all you have is a little tiny pinhole. Yeah, we, we all have enough lenses to do that. You have an article on Adobe Create uh, from a few months ago and you talk about how to focus stacking in Photoshop. And I had always thought – I mean I had heard this term before. It was one of those arcane terms that I figured I would get to in Photography 301. Uh, and I'd always heard it in relation to macro photos. And in your article, you discuss that later. But you start by discussing landscapes. Now, for me, I've really never considered that type of need in landscape. If I really need depth of field, I just use a tiny aperture. Uh, but you explain that I'm wrong. Uh, I've done this wrong the whole time. <laughs> um, so why don't you explain, first of all, what focus stacking is, how it works, and talk about using it with landscape photos. Sure thing. Um, and you're not wrong. You're just not yet informed. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was the same way. Um, I had heard of focus stacking, but it was always something that, um, you know, it's, it's something beyond what I, I needed. And so I didn't pay very much attention uh, because I wasn't doing mo- macro photography. It always seemed to me the kind of thing that the know-it-alls in the Facebook photo groups would talk about um, and that I hadn't known it all yet. It's also something that sounded very complicated and advanced. And so since I didn't have a direct need for it, I didn't really want to jump into it. It turns out it's actually very easy to do. Now, it can be difficult to do very well as many things are in photography. But this is absolutely something that you can go, and if you have Photoshop or some other uh, utilities, you can absolutely go out and make a focus bracket and stack them together and get a good result. So what is it? Basically, focus stacking is you're taking several shots of something at different focus levels. And... Then when you combine them, when you stack them, you get a deeper depth of focus. Now, in macro photography, as you said, uh, this is really helpful because you might want a super close-up picture of the middle of a flower. That's that's the, the typical example. And when you do that, you might get like the foreground. You might get the, the petals in the foreground. And they're in focus and the ones that are just beyond the background, you know, which can be, you know, a matter of centimeters, those are like slightly fuzzy or maybe the middle is slightly fuzzy. Exactly. Maybe even just millimeters exactly. sometimes when you're really close. Centimeters are big. Centimeters are big. They're, yes. they're not, <laughs> there's 2.54 centimeters in an inch. You're right. So. You're right. See – I'm from yeah. the United States, and I don't even know any of those words that you said. Yes, I know. <laughs> it's like the only, the only country know, in the world that doesn't use the metric system. But, yes, we're talking about very, very small differences in distance. Um, when you are with a macro lens, particularly with a wide-open aperture, you don't have much depth of field. That's the key thing. 
you can go back to our depth of field episode to know more about the basics if you're not familiar with it. But if you remember, if you have a wide open lens, if your aperture is like at f1.8 or 1.4 or even 1.2, you get that really nice soft background. Well, that's one thing when you're shooting a portrait, for example. But when you're trying to shoot up close, that means that the plane of focus is very, very, very narrow. And so that makes everything else seem fuzzy. Okay, a couple of questions. The plane of focus is narrow when you're with a wide open aperture, but why are you using a wide open aperture? Because maybe you need that much light. If you're shooting something like this and you're planning to use focus stacking, you're going to be using a tripod, correct? Uh, well, you have to use you a could tripod. probably get away with it, but it's much, 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 much better to use okay, a tripod. Okay, you need yeah. to use a tripod. Okay, particularly yes. if you're doing a macro shot. Why not just close down your aperture and use a slow shutter speed? Um, I, I've shown a couple of the flower photos that I've been taking lately. I've been taking these flower photos against a black background. Um, I'm using natural light from a window, and I shoot them at about one or two seconds, depending on what the light is. I'm on a tripod. It really There is absolutely no difference between... Uh, changing the shutter speed and changing the aperture. I mean, other than the depth of field, it's just the amount of light that comes in. So if it's on a tripod and the, the tip is to use your timer so you don't get a shake when you press the shutter button, it's the same amount of light over two seconds as it would be over a sixtieth of a second with a different aperture. Uh, you're correct, but there are some circumstances when, when that's not even enough. So when you want a really deep depth of field, you can set your aperture... Uh, very narrow. Um, you know, some cameras up to like f22. The problem with that is uh, some lenses at those high apertures will, uh, you know, introduce distortion or, or vignetting. Um, you know, every lens has a sweet spot where it has the best optical performance, say, you know, f9 or f10 or something like that. And that's why uh, when I've been shooting those far photos, I haven't gone to f16, which is the smallest aperture on my lenses. I've done it at f11. Right, right. And so you might have a situation where you, you just don't have enough light to do that. Now, you can compensate for that. You can increase your ISO. You can slow down your shutter speed. But it also depends on what you're shooting and where. You may be in a situation where there's enough of a light breeze that if you have a long shutter speed, you're going to end up with, with something blurry. And so this now gets us outside. Right. But focus stacking being multiple shots of the same thing, a breeze is going to be a problem, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So this is so, getting complicated, Jeff. I know. See, this is why we wanted to avoid it. And now we're, we're jumping into it. To get back to your original question, yes, we can do this uh, in a macro setting. But what about landscape photography? Right. So the idea here is when you are outside, you may have something that is, uh, you know, in the extreme foreground. And you want that to be in focus because that's probably going to be one of the first things that somebody sees when they look at the picture. But you also want the background to be in focus. And as you said, the way you would do that normally is you would set a narrow aperture and possibly a, you know, a, a shutter speed that, that compensates for that so you get enough light. But in some circumstances, if it's really bright, for example, you stop down that aperture and you're going to get distortion. So that's when focus bracketing can come into effect. 
Okay, so we're going to link to your article uh, about doing this in Photoshop, and I want to discuss the second photo in the article. Um, so it looks like it's a, a frozen lake with snow on it, and you see the light off the lake in the front, and you see the mountains in the sky in the background. And I'm thinking, okay, this is focus stacked, and there's a certain amount of time to set the focus. This was done manually, and we'll talk about cameras that might do it automatically later. Mm -hmm. But you have the risk of the light changing if there's enough wind to move the clouds. Basically, what you're doing is you're overlaying a number of photos. And isn't that going to be a problem? Or does Photoshop just know to take the front for one photo, the middle for another, and the, the distance for another? Uh, yes. Thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what's happening here so in in this photo and and i have to give credit to uh nick page who's nick a, page, yes. a washington photographer who i interviewed for this article you're absolutely right you could have a situation where the sky changes or something else changes when photoshop does the actual stacking what it's doing is basically creating a mask and so in this case you'll have one layer that is one image that is say the mountains that are in focus and the and the sky and then because the ice in the foreground i mean that he was probably shooting a really wide angle lens and so you know that that first sort of bit of colorful uh sky reflection that could be maybe you know a foot in front of the camera and and so that was probably out of focus in the the first shot so then he focused on the foreground there and took that shot and then when you bring those into photoshop what photoshop will do is it can uh pick out which areas are in focus based on like the contrast and um it it can tell and so it, it then creates a mask so the 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 background image most likely is intact and then the foreground image has a mask so that all of the the you know top third of the image uh, is just wiped out of that frame so that it comes through. Does that make sense? So Photoshop can tell what's in focus. Yes, as you say, because of contrast and sharpness. And how does it know? So it automatically chooses a transition point. Because it knows that in one photo it's the back and in one it's the front and it's kind of got AI smarts and it figures out, well, I'm just going to split it here. And it may not be a straight line split. It may be, you know, according to the the topography of the layout that it might split differently. Do you know how many photos were taken for this particular photo we're talking about? I, Two, three, more? I don't know, but most of the ones that he takes in, uh, for, for these sorts of landscapes, uh, it's just two shots. If you look at the third one, you can see there's a clear demarcation between the front and the back. There's a line, a horizontal line where the, where the trees are. Mm -hmm. um, so it's almost easy to make that divide. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, you know, th this is also something you could do by hand. Uh, you could just put both images into layers and then mask them by hand. Um, in fact, you know, that, that second one, I, I would imagine would be really easy to do that by hand. Um, what Photoshop does, and it, actually, I don't think there's any AI involved. It just has algorithms to look for sharpness. It will go through and, and not just make a straight line. It will, you know, sort of 
semi-intelligently figure out which it'll parts find the borders are the overlap yeah exactly yeah um and and, and blend them in such a way that um i mean you know well it's, it's photoshop it's magic it just works <laughs> with magic and i have to say so for something like this it does seem a bit like magic because it does do a really good job and and, and the way you do this is super simple Okay, so you're talking about landscapes, and I, I was talking about the flower photos I've been doing, and it, it never really occurred to me to want to do this. Um, we'll put a photo in the show notes that I shot the other day. It's a red onion that's sprouting, and my partner got this um, in the farm shop next to our house that they weren't selling it because it was sprouting and people wouldn't buy it. And I looked at this on the table. I said, my God, this is wonderful. You've got the red and the green and everything. But it's all in focus and i was shooting this at about f11 um actually i'm looking if i zoom in and i look on the left side it is a little bit blurry in the background so i could do the same thing here just manually with my camera pick a focus point in the front take a shot pick another focus point in the back and it's that simple yes it it sounds like cheating in a way well, you know, so much of photography does sound like cheating because the camera's doing a lot of the work for you. In this case, whether you're you're doing it automatically in the camera or if you're just, you know, adjusting the focus knob. Um the focus knob. The focus <laughs> Oh, that's, that's, oh, this is going to be a good advanced one to edit. photography terminology here. <laughs> Whether you're doing it automatically in the camera or whether you're adjusting the focus ring manually, <laughs> it does seem like cheating. And yet it allows you to do things that you might not normally do. Now, now this shot, I think, is you know great as it is. But what if, for example, you wanted to just focus right in on where it's sprouting? Then you might have more uh, of a need to do the focus stacking. I should also mention in that Adobe Create article that I wrote, You'll also see some really great shots by Nick Page, his landscape shots. And then you'll see my attempts at doing some macro focus stacking. And I had some silver coins that I put together. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. Because the, the question of macro versus landscape, there's a very big difference, right? Uh, yes, it is. The, but the, the point that I was going to make for here is that um, when you're adjusting the focus manually, you can completely blow it by by overdoing it even just with a tiny tiny adjustment yeah um i'm just thinking of one thing i find that it's a feature not a bug that when i'm focusing on part of a flower the other part is blurry yes that that sort of b b blur that you get with a with a wide open aperture i i consider that to be a bit of a feature. However, you, you did say something earlier, the inside of a flower, the bit where the pistols are, and sometimes that's not always in focus. So can you focus stack, but limit the focus stacking to just part of a photo? So could I have the petals that are blurry out of focus, but the center of the flower in focus? I guess if you cropped your different photos and overlaid them, Photoshop could figure that out. Yeah. And and when we say Photoshop, uh, I looked up earlier, there are other apps like Affinity Photo and Pixelmator Pro that can do this. And I'm sure there are you know, plenty of apps that can do this. Yeah, definitely. This is something where you're putting together the elements of a creative work. You know, we talk a lot about going somewhere and getting a photo and trying to capture it in camera and do the best you can. 
so that you don't have to do a lot of processing. This is a technique where the processing is really a huge part of doing it. And so, you know, you may do your focus stacking and, and the way Photoshop does it, you have every image on a separate layer. And then you could go in and manually change the mask. So let's say you do want the the petals in the you know top third to still be slightly blurry. Maybe you remove the mask for those so that you, you get that effect from other images. So you have a lot of latitude as to how the final result ends up because you're working with a lot of uh, raw material. In some ways, focus stacking is the focus equivalent of HDR photos. Yes. In HDR, you're playing with light at different exposure. And here, you're playing with different focal plane distances. Okay, let's take a break and come back because we're starting to get a little bit confused. And we're going to come back <laughs> and we're going to get more specific about doing this with macro photography. Okay, so you mentioned before the break, uh, further down on the page of your article, these pictures of the coins you have. There are nine of them. And why does the first one have something red in front of it? Was that just getting a focus point or something? Oh, <laughs> that is me putting something in front of the image to indicate where my bracket started. As you're looking at these in Lightroom, uh, which is what, what I did, I opened them in Lightroom. It's just an easy way to tell, okay, th this is the start of this set of brackets that I did. Because I, I mean, I shot maybe, I don't know, dozens or hundreds of, of pictures attempting to get this right. Um, and in this case, I was using my uh, Fuji X-T1, which does not have an automatic focus bracketing feature. And I was also using a Nikon macro lens that I had left over from my uh, Nikon gear with... So a Fuji camera and a Nikon lens means no autofocus. Exactly, with an adapter that has manual focus. Right. And so I figured, well, you know, I know how to operate a focus ring, and you'll just move it in itty-bitty tiny increments to do a set of, say, you know, in this case, 9 or 10 or whatever. And I learned very quickly that even the tiniest adjustments could have broad effects. But the problem is you don't know that until you've stacked them together. And so what would happen, I would bring them into Photoshop and stack them and then see, you know, some blurry blob right in the middle where <laughs> I had just, you know, missed like one tiny slice of, of that stack and that ruins the whole thing. And so then I had to shoot it again. So all the more reason to put it on a tripod. Uh, well, you have to put it on a tripod right. for something like this. Um, so, yeah, that's the big difference. In a landscape, you're going to have maybe two or three photos, whereas if you're shooting macro, you may need dozens. We were looking before the show at a book 
called Fuji X Secrets, which is a book from Rocky Nook by Rico Furstinger. And it's a book that goes through all of the features and menu items in a Fuji camera. Um, because our Fuji X-T3 does have focus stacking. And the example photo in this book consists of 241 individual RAW files that were automatically recorded by his GFX-50S, which is Fuji's medium format camera. So when you're working with macro, your, your focus slices have to be, there have to be a lot of them. Um, whether it's the coins that you shot there, whether it's flowers, uh, you're going to have to do an awful lot of pictures. Now, if you do it manually, I would assume that manual focus is better because if even if you're using a single focus point and you're going to move it across the um, the flower, let's take flower as an example, it's not going to necessarily be enough of a difference from one photo to the next to make it seamless. Do you have to shoot these photos in order or does Photoshop not care? In other words, do you have to shoot the closest first and gradually to the furthest, or can you shoot the closest, the furthest, and then come back in the middle? That's a very good question. Uh, I think it doesn't matter because Photoshop is looking for sharp focus. Right. And, and part of the process is to automatically align the images. And you yes. would think, okay, well, I shot this on a tripod, so of course they're going to be automatically aligned. However, you have to remember, and this is one of the things that, that you'll run into, especially in smaller macros, is this concept of focus breathing, which is... Breathing. Focus breathing. And I, I think I'm using this term correctly. Um, we'll just pretend I am because I'm the one speaking. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Um, focus breathing, which is as you change your focus... And you can test this on pretty much anything. It changes the size of things in the frame. And so, so as you change your focus and your focus stacking, everything's not going to align directly because something that's in the quote-unquote background may be a bit larger or a bit smaller. So as you focus between the foreground and the background, even if that's a very small distance, the size in relation to each other, the, the different frames can change. So when you bring it into Photoshop and you first align the images, what it will sometimes do is resize those a little bit just to make sure that they are aligned and then pick out all of the sharp areas and then do its masking to blend them together. That's interesting. Yeah. So me, me interested in flower photography, I've never really considered trying this, but now you know that I will consider Absolutely. trying this come the weekend when I have some time, I shall set up my tripod in particular because we both have a Fuji X-T3, which has a built-in bracketing focus stacking system. Um, so essentially you choose the number of frames you want, how many steps there are, and the interval in time. Um, and going back to this book, uh, Fuji X Secrets, the author says, the latter is useful to have the camera settle down after each shot to avoid shutter-induced vibration. If available, it's recommended to activate the electronic first curtain shutter or just use the electronic shutter. You're not going to have any problems unless you have um, a particular type of light that could be problematic. We need to do a show between the difference between the mechanical and electronic shutter one day because this is something I didn't 
realize until a couple months ago, I looked it up, and it's actually quite interesting. You can get these propellers in planes that look like they're bent if you yes. use the electronic shutter. Um, so, yes, this it is possible to do this automatically, and I'm assuming that it's a lot easier to do automatically. Um, if you're setting, let's say, you know, 100 photos with, with a, an interval of one, whatever that one is, it doesn't say on the camera what that one is. I'm assuming it's calculating from the foreground of the photo to the background of the photo, the distance, perhaps. It is focusing first as close as possible and then moving back. Um, it, it's, it takes out the guesswork that you had when you were manually turning the focus knob. As yes. You said. Yes. Well. Well. And it's it's uh, mechanized. And so what's nice about that is it's not relying on you know my stupid human hands to try to get something precise. It can reproduce this in, in a precise, measured way. If you have a Fuji lens, because with your Nikon right. lens you can't do the autofocus, so it can't work. Right. Right. Then my stupid human hands had no choice. Yes. Um, now, I'm trying to think of applications for this because on the one hand, macro photos, flowers, whatever. But if you do product photos for a living or food photography, if you're not shooting straight down, this would be ideal uh, to make sure everything is in focus to get to get something. I'm thinking, I don't know, a photo of a whiskey bottle in the foreground and of a bar in the background. You want to have that perfect focus. Oh, yeah. Unless you want the blurry background to be in effect. Well, even in that case, and, and that's a fantastic point to bring up because focus stacking is used a lot in product photography because, of course, you want the product to look the best that it can. And if you have, like, say, the whiskey bottle and the the top, you know, back edge of it is slightly out of focus, that can be distracting. Now, maybe you want the bar in the background to be completely blurry. That's fine. But even, you know, just shooting the bottle, you want to make sure that everything is, is super sharp. Or for example, you know, I've, I think you and I have both run into this taking pictures of say Apple gear when we're writing about, you know, iPhones and I've, done some product photography of iPhones, which is a bear because they're reflective and the, you know, yep. um, and invariably there's some of that, that focus change. And so some of it gets more blurry in the background and you say, oh, well, that's the look I'm going after. Well, yes, perhaps, you know, some clients don't want that or, or, you know, in some uses you, you really want that to be super sharp all the way through. And that's exactly what photo stacking is for. And now I know that it's not that complicated. So when I get my new iPhone and need to take photos for a review, instead of shooting from above, I'll shoot from an angle and I'll do the focus stacking and it will look so slick. Exactly. It exactly. will look like a professional photo. Yes. I also want to point out um, some people do focus stacking like in the extreme. You know, that, that example you mentioned, which was like 25 shots or no, sorry, 250 shots. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think for some people like that's, that's super easy. Um, I'll link in the show notes. There's a photographer named Bob Sober. He takes this to an extreme where the pictures of the insects involve thousands of focus brackets. I guess the insects are dead. I think so. Or they're very patient. They're, they're well-trained. <laughs> <laughs> they're asleep. But these are the kind um, of shots where, you know, you're looking at a, a fly's head 
And, yeah. and you see the eyes and, and the it, front and eyes and the everything. back eyes are all in focus, I know. Exactly, I exactly. Know. You know, that's not something that I think I'm ever going to do. And if anything, I will either do some macro or some product photography. But more often, I will use it, as we mentioned earlier, and I'll put an example in the show notes, where there's something in the foreground you want in focus and something in the background you want in focus. And just trying to get that shot with with one frame can't quite do it. In this case, there was a fence post and it was just blurry enough that I, I just used two shots and merged those together. Yeah. I remember you showed that to me and, and I thought that was really interesting. And this is how we got onto the topic of discussing focus stacking. And here we are. And here we are. Um, just one thing though, that person who shot 241 photos of the coin um, he's doing it with a GFX, which is a medium format camera. Now, I know that on my X-T3, a RAW photo is 50-odd megabytes. So GFX is maybe the double. 240 times that. We're, we're up in terabyte territory oh, yeah. to do this. And how long does it take for Photoshop to do the processing for something like that, even with your example of just the nine photos? Um, it didn't take too long. So you know, obviously it depends on your computer because this is very processor intensive, but I think, you know, I have a 2016 MacBook pro and it probably took a couple minutes for it to do the processing just of the, you know, nine or 10 shots per bracket. So, you know, definitely if, if you're in the hundreds of shots, you're going to be waiting for your computer to, to chew on that. You need the iMac pro for that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> or the forthcoming Mac Pro or something, yeah. Or a lot of patience. If anyone listening has made photos with focus stacking, and I'm pretty sure one member of our Facebook group has done this quite a bit, uh, do put some examples up in the Facebook group. What? You're not a member of the Facebook group? Go to photoactive.co and find out how to join so you can share your photos with us. Um, I am curious to see what people can do. Now that I know how to do this, um, I want to try it and, and both for landscapes and close-ups and, I don't know, maybe a potato or something. Because if, if you do a potato uh, from the end, it does a long distance. And if you're shooting close, then it's very easy for the back end to be out of focus. So I shall find an interesting potato and try to add a photo to the show notes. So show us your focus stacking photos in Facebook. And we will do the same. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about our snapshots this week. Jeff, what have you got? My snapshot has nothing to do with focus stacking and everything to do with shooting at a different orientation. So if you recall a few episodes back, I talked about uh, shooting a conference where I was the, the event photographer and I went ahead and bought a Fujifilm X-T3 vertical battery booster grip. What this is, it's basically a grip that you attach to the bottom of your camera. And of course, this these are available for all sorts of cameras, but this is just the one that works on mine. And it does two things. One, it lets you hold the camera in a portrait orientation, but your hand is still holding on to the camera on the right-hand side. So that way you're not cranking your hand over or under if you're shooting a lot of portraits. Uh, which in, in this case, I was shooting a lot of portrait oriented photos. If you are like, say, uh, you know, a, a more dedicated portrait photographer, you might want to have this on your camera full time, for example. 
What is also nice about this is it has an, another shutter button. So as you turn the camera, you're not having to basically origami yourself into weird situations to in order to get that shot. What's also nice is it holds two extra batteries. And so that makes it possible to have a lot longer battery life, especially if you're in a situation where you're doing a lot of shooting. Now, uh, it's not cheap. It's like $350. And I could have just rented it, but I want to do more portrait photography in the future. And so I went ahead and bought it. Um, it works great. If you feel that you have a, like a mirrorless camera that's just a little bit too small, some people have larger hands, that can balance out the weight. It, it does add weight. It does kind of ruin some of the advantages of having a small camera. But if you're using it and you really need it, which I did in that case, uh, it was invaluable. It also makes your camera look like a big-ass DSLR. It does. It does. And sometimes that's what you want. Yeah, it, it can be practical. Yeah. Uh, I know that Fuji's, is it the GX100, their new 100 megapixel yeah. medium format, comes with that built in. So it's not even something you add on. It's the body is shaped like that with the two with the yes. two sides that you can hold it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I personally prefer smaller, lighter cameras, and I rarely shoot in portrait mode. But if you are shooting in portrait mode, I can totally understand. Absolutely. And in fact, I, I normally don't have it on. But when I needed it, it was great. Yeah. Kirk, what do you have this week? I have something that's just a bit of a time saver. Uh, I, I've been talking about the flower photography that I've been doing lately. And whenever I do this, I put my camera on my tripod. And what I did for a long time is I would get that little plate that goes onto the tripod and screw it in. I'd have to find a coin and screw it in and get it tight and make sure it's straight and then put the camera on the tripod. I finally gave up and just put a tripod plate permanently on my camera. Permanently, I can unscrew it. Um, I have one that I got with a Peak Design strap a couple years ago that I never used. The, the strap can be attached um, on one of the O-rings, one end of the strap, and the other strap goes underneath. So it's it's like in a sling position. You can pick it up quickly. And I never used it like that. But I had this plate, and I'm just leaving it on my camera. It weighs about three grams, uh, which is, you know, in the metric for not very much in ounces. That's and, 20 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> and it does protrude a little bit. And if I put my camera down on my desk like it is now, uh, it's sitting on the plate, which isn't dead center in the camera. Um, and I guess you could hurt yourself, too, if you get it caught on something. Uh, but it is really practical to have it there since I have been putting the camera on a tripod a lot. Uh you can get all sorts of tripod plates from, uh, you know, any company. Uh, you, If you have a tripod, you already have one. So you could just take a plate that's with your tripod. But the advantage of this is it's really thin and light. And the one that I have for my tripod is a lot thicker. I have one on my camera almost all the time. See? And I had no idea. The things that I learned from this podcast. The things that we hope everybody's learning from this podcast. If you have a tripod plate on your camera, take a picture and throw it up on our Facebook group. <laughs> Just take all sorts of pictures and put them in our Facebook boat. Exactly. Okay. That's enough for this week. And until next time, Jeff, take un care. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the end. 
You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.